Welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Clady. I'm the host for today's show, uh, which is being recorded on location at the 2019 ABA Annual Meeting in San Francisco, California. And I have a wonderful panel of guests joining me. So today we're going to be talking about this CLE session titled due process issues facing the U.S. immigration courts. And this was sponsored, of course, by the Judicial Division, but more specifically, the National Conference of the Administrative Law Judiciary. Did I get that correct so far? Yes, you did. So, and it's important because we have two judges here, so I have to be very careful and watch my steps. So let me uh, let me start with that. So I'm gonna, uh, Karen, is it okay if I introduce the judges first, just uh, because it's the honorifics, we, uh, we have great Absolutely deference for the court. Absolutely, yes. So, all right, so I'm gonna start to my left over here. I have Judge Dana Marks joining us, and so welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So I am an immigration judge in San Francisco, California. I've been on the bench since 1987. Uh, and I'm here in my capacity as President Emerita of the National Association of Immigration Judges and able to represent their perspective rather than that of the United States Department of Justice, who speaks for itself. Gotcha, gotcha. So, and next to you, I have Judge Joan Churchill. Welcome to the show. Hi, I have been an immigration judge for 25 years, but I retired several years ago. So I served from 1980 till 2005. I have been the president of the National Association of Women Judges, so I'm a past president of that. I'm currently involved with the ABA section on National Conference of Administrative Law Judiciary, and I was the one who prepared the proposal for this program. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. And last but not least, we have Karen Grisey joining us today. Uh, and I didn't quite understand your role as part of the panel group, so uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and also where you work, what do you do? Sure. Um, my role on the panel today was as representative of the ABA Commission on Immigration. I was chair of the commission at the time the 2010 immigration reform report was issued, and I now serve as a member on the commission. In my day job, I manage the pro bono program. I'm full-time public service counsel at Freed, Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson in Washington, D.C., and a frequent pro bono volunteer in uh, immigration court um, cases and appeals. Excellent. Thank you. And so uh, just transitioning to our topic du jour here. So uh, it's a CLE, uh, again, once uh, once again by review, due process issues facing the U.S. immigration courts. And so I'd like to have a volunteer to give me the 50,000 foot. Well, I would, I would explain that this was a really expert panel and we had different perspectives. So we started out with the perspective of an active immigration judge. Then we heard from Karen Gouzet, who has been the chair of the Commission on Immigration, which has a number of concerns about what's going on with the immigration judiciary, and they have come out with a report. And Karen explained what the problems were that the profession has um, identified and their proposals. Then we, then we heard from Betty Stevens, who on behalf of the Federal Bar Association, has prepared a proposed bill for Congress to pass that would set up an Article I immigration court. And then we heard from Professor um, Richard Pierce, who's a, prof a specialist in immigration law, 
who has some ideas on how the issues could be challenged in the courts rather than wait for congressional action. Okay, so uh, Judge Churchill, I think this first question is coming to you. And so uh, just in terms of due process and immigration courts, a little bit different area of law, certainly not my expertise, but uh, how is due process defined within the immigration court system? Well, there is no definition. Due process is a bedrock concept in the U.S. Constitution and the Fifth Amendment. What it is is a subject of debate. It's uh, subjective at best. But we all agree that due process requires in the adjudicative uh, uh, tribunal situation that the adjudicator be a person who is neutral. That means uninfluenced by either side, either party. It means a person who makes decisions based on the record and solely the record before them in compliance with the law and regulations. And Judge Marks, I'm going to turn for the second part of this question. So uh, obviously that's due process laid out. Uh, that's uh, in its ideal sense how it's supposed to be. But uh, how does that compare to the reality in the immigration courts today? It's a real challenge in the immigration courts today because we hear death penalty cases in a traffic court setting. We are administrative judges actually classified under the law as attorney advisors. And it's our belief at the National Association of Immigration Judges, a belief that's shared by the American Bar Association, the Federal Bar Association, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, that we should be moved into an Article I court setting to be independent of the Department of Justice. Because there are times that the Department of Justice, who is the, uh, and the Attorney General, who is my boss, um, will implement uh, initiatives which judges in the field believe may encroach upon our ability to judge cases in the most expeditious way, but also in a way that gives the most deference to due process. For example, there are constraints placed on our ability to organize our own dockets. It sounds like that's something very benign in the abstract, but when you apply it in everyday life, it can affect whether or not someone is eligible for a benefit because their case is lagging for such a long period of time. So it has real-world consequences, and the immigration judges believe that to ensure that we uh, decide cases with due process. We need decisional independence, and that includes independence from a politicized branch being our manager, our court manager. Gotcha, gotcha. And so, uh, obviously, I follow this issue on the news as part of my job at Legal Talk Network to stay on top of current events uh, just so I know what to cover. And, you know, immigration has been a uh, long time in the news, and, uh, you know, uh, for the last you know, I would say 10, 15 years has really accelerated uh, in the, the front part of people's minds. Just It's uh, becoming an issue that Americans seem to be tuning in more and more for. So in terms of today, there's been a lot of mass migration uh, across the planet. And uh, obviously, we feel it in the United States. We have uh, you know people overstaying visas, and we have people that come in that way. But also on our southern border uh, and northern border, but mostly uh, I think the, the emphasis right now uh, is just kind of the crowding on the southern border in our country. And so my understanding, some of the problems that we're having is just we don't have enough volume to accommodate all the people coming in seeking asylum or making immigration requests. So uh, just in terms of that, and, and Karen, I'm going to turn to you for this. I, I, I think there's only so much judges can do, but I, I know that we can get attorneys involved. So what, what can attorneys out there that maybe have a little time to give towards pro bono, what can they do to help? Um, well, I should start out by saying that 
it's the policy of the ABA that persons should not only have the right to be represented in immigration court at their own expense or by pro bono uh, lawyers, but that the risk of deportation, what the Supreme Court has called, um, uh, you know, the the risk of losing everything that makes life worth living, uh, that, that that is a highly important right that's akin to the level of seriousness or need for protection as that that applies in criminal cases. So we start with the premise that everybody who can't afford a lawyer should have the right to appointed counsel in immigration court. But short of that, in a, in a period of time where we don't have uh, appointed counsel for everyone, what individual lawyers can do is learn something, study about the issue, know what's going on, realize that you can do a far better job for someone in immigration court proceedings than they could do for themselves, find a training, take a pro bono case, whether it's for a child, an adult, in court, not in court. There are many, many ways that people can be of assistance and uh, a myriad of legal service providers, ABA programs and otherwise, who would love to take advantage of your skills, training, and expertise. The statistics show that 85% of immigrants who are in immigration detention have to represent themselves. That's how desperate the need is for volunteer lawyers to help fill the gap while the, the law moves forward and recognizes the right to appointed counsel. And the statistics are um, that people with representation do six or seven times better, more likely to achieve success in their cases if they're represented than if they're not represented. And clearly that's not on a different set of facts. That's with the representation itself being the... the um, differentiating factor. And in detained cases, it's a much higher rate, maybe 15 times as likely, I think, as the most recent study that I've read. The, the need for, for volunteer counsel is most acute, actually, in the detained setting. Persons in detention have a lot of trouble getting counsel, largely because they're in remote areas often. So I have a follow-up question on that. So if we had a magic wand and we waved it, we suddenly had enough pro bono attorneys to represent every immigration asylum request uh, coming to our country. We still have the bottleneck issue of the courts. And so there's only so many judges to go around. There's, uh, so that's going to be a volume issue. So uh, Judge Marks, I mean, what ideas do you have for uh, increasing that availability, opening up, I guess, uh, freeing up that bottleneck? Well, we definitely need more resources. And we used to call ourselves the legal Cinderella's of the Department of Justice because we felt that we got the leftovers uh, and did not get uh, the resources that we need. Recent administrations have been making a tremendous effort to do that. But the current administration has cut back sharply on the concept of prosecutorial discretion. And I think the American public doesn't understand a lot about the nuances of immigration law. I find that many lawyers don't understand those nuances. There are people here who have committed what is in essence a civil infraction. They don't have a legal status to be here, but they're not a danger to the community. They've not committed crimes. They often are entrenched in our community, uh, have family members and are performing essential labor services. So those are the cases that many of us would prioritize through prosecutorial discretion if it were available. And if judges had the ability to organize their docket in a way to prioritize the cases that we think 
uh, present uh, a situation where the community might be in danger or where this person is a bad actor and deserves to be removed from the United States promptly. Some of those tools could be afforded to immigration judges in addition mm -hmm. to beefing up the resources, mm -hmm. and it's very necessary. Do and you see ways in which the uh, current policy is creating more of a backlog? There is actually the uh, Remain in Mexico program, which is technically called MPP. I believe that stands for the Migrant Protection Protocol. Uh, there's a metering going on where uh, applicants are only allowed in uh, in certain numbers over certain periods of time. It doesn't have to be that way. People can be processed relatively quickly, given ankle bracelets, so that they are not free without some kind of supervision in the United States. And most of these people are coming to the United States because they have family members or friends who are willing to reach out. But because of the fact that some of those individuals are also undocumented, they're not going to step forward and, and come to a detention facility to help that person. Mm -hmm. And this is Karen. There's another thing I was going to mention on the resource front that could be very helpful, which is that right now there's a program called the Legal Orientation Program that's funded by the Department of Justice um, through a grant to the VERA Institute. And VERA, in turn, uh, subgrants um, money to a variety of selected programs around the country to go into the detention center and provide know your rights presentations to detainees. For many, that's the only information they get about what immigration court um, is going to be like, what the hearings are like, what forms of relief they might be eligible for, or any of that. But even that legal orientation program is not uni universally available. It's only available in some detention centers, and some detainees go through removal proceedings, never getting any information or talking to any lawyer at all. So expanding, at a minimum, legal orientation program to everybody is something that is a policy of the ABA and one that we certainly would endorse. And it would be supported by the National Association of Immigration Judges as well. We've been on record that lawyers, we're one of the few people that love lawyers, and anytime there's a lawyer in sight, that's helpful to us, because that helps us know that we are getting the information we need to comply with due process and, and render a fair decision. The statute and regulations require that the immigration judges explain to each litigant before us the uh, rights that they have in the process. Recently, there's been a, a move to provide those warnings by video, and that's been the subject of uh, considerable concern. It's been commented that it's very problematic in the sense that many of the people who come before us have a very poor education level, even in their own uh, language, in their own country. So the uh, level of sophistication and the language that is used, even though it's translated into a foreign language, uh, is problematic. It's problematic because it is a general advisal that can be very confusing. Uh, immigration law is often compared in complexity to tax law, but it's far more complex. <laughs> There is no TurboTax for immigration law because there are no binary choices in immigration law. And yet these advisals, so they try to cover such a broad basis that they end up confusing people, I believe, uh, by virtue of being overwhelmed with information that really isn't relevant to their cases. It's no substitute to having enough judges to be able to carefully work through mm -hmm. an individual's case and 
explain to them a little bit about the law and find out from them if they're in a position to benefit from any mm -hmm. of the provisions that would allow them to legalize their status mm -hmm. under existing law mm -hmm. passed by Congress. And this case-specific application of law to facts is so critical for anyone to um, be informed enough to make their own choices. As a practitioner, I see or hear all the time from potential clients or people in a clinical setting who say, my cousin had so-and-so, my next-door neighbor, this, this other detainee, you know, lawyer told him to do X, so I think I should do X. But it totally ignores the fact that the country of origin, the facts, the criminal history, if any, the family equities, all of those things may be entirely different. And so the getting somebody to really look at the facts of a case rather than what happened in somebody else's case are critical. Getting back to the title of our, our program, which has to do with due process, one has to ask, is it due process if persons haven't been explained the procedure in a way that they can understand? So we have the issue of if they don't have a lawyer and the judge is not explaining it to them in person and the interpreter is on the telephone, how much are people getting due process in a situation where perhaps they don't understand what's going on? So I have one last question. I want to get you on to your next event. And uh, and so we, we recently talked with AILA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, and uh, sort of building on what I'm hearing here for the last couple of responses, uh, information, uh, getting that information out to people is one of the big problems uh, in the immigration system right now in terms of the court system and people knowing what their rights are. But in, in immigration, in immigration decisions, you have several people that are playing a role here. You have the immigrants that are applying for citizenship. Uh, not always. Seekers. Many of them, many people are willing to be deported. So not everybody in before the immigration courts are seeking a benefit. Okay, uh, fair enough, fair point. Uh, mm -hmm. So you have uh, those folks, uh, the immigrants who are, and then you have asylum seekers, uh, you have the judges and you have the lawyers and everyone has a distinct piece of that puzzle. And so I guess what I want to do is just leave everybody sort of uh, summarize it, consolidate a little bit, uh, just in terms of all of those folks that are involved in this process. What are some great resources that you know of for them to turn to to get that information that we're talking about? And so I just wanted to, if I could turn to each one of you uh, for a contribution that I think would be pretty valuable for, for the listening audience. So uh, Karen, can we start with you? Are you talking about for people in removal proceedings or for the general public? Uh, anybody, I mean, uh, to, to help with this, uh, to help with uh, the administration of immigration proceedings, you know, what what uh, what services or resources or books or blogs or all of that uh, can people uh, turn okay. to? Okay, well, I'll, I'll um, take the liberty of saying two. Okay. Um, one is that the Commission on Immigration, ABA Commission on Immigration, has just published its 2019 update report with recommendations for improve, improvements to the adjudication system across the board at every stage of the immigration process. So that's a great educational tool if people want to learn who are the players, what agencies are involved, and how it works. The other one that I'll say, and I'm not always very strong on government resources, but the Immigration Court Practice Manual and the BIA Practice Manual 
um, both are tremendously helpful to people going through the system as well as to lawyers trying to educate themselves when they're not experienced about what it takes to appear before either of those fora. And I would say for someone looking to actually get involved in representation, those would be great resources. Right. And Judge Marks? There, there is the uh, virtual law library at the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which contains materials and including country reports uh, regarding conditions in various countries for people who may want to be helping someone who's seeking asylum, uh, as well as those resources about the practice manuals as to how to go through uh, those steps along the way in filing a case because the practice of immigration law is so different from state court or federal court practice. Um, I would also recommend if people are interested in a more complete picture about the due process issues and how the immigration court works, that you might want to consult the website of the National uh, Association of Immigration Judges, which is www.naij-usa.org. Um, you have, we have publications about independence and due process that are listed on our website as well as news articles. Uh, and that could be a helpful resource for people who are interested about the milieu they'd be getting into were they to start volunteering in immigration court. Judge Churchill. The website would be the source I would suggest for people. Use topical words. There's many organizations that provide social service assistance of a legal nature or others that are in each that are in many communities and those would be the places to approach to to volunteer for help well, it looks like we've reached the end of our episode here today, and I want to thank our uh, our prestigious uh, guests for joining us uh, on our on our podcast today. God provided some some uh, great information. So, uh, Judge Marks, Judge Churchill, thank you so much, and Karen, thank you as well for uh, for your contributions here. And so, if our listeners they want to reach out and learn more, want to volunteer, uh, they feel like they have something to give, how can they find you? Let's start with Karen this time. Um, the best way to reach me is uh, my email address, which is Karen.Grise, G-R-I-S-E-Z, at Fried Frank, F-R-I-E-D, Frank.com. Judge Marks. Wow. Uh, it's a little dicey for a sitting judge to give out contact information, but through the National Association of Immigration Judges, in my union capacity, I can be reached at Dana Marks, D-A-N-A-M-A-R-K-S, at P-O-B-O-X dot com. Judge Churchill. I'm going to give the email address of the administrator of, for the uh, Judicial Division of the American Bar Association. And so I could be reached care of her, Chris, K-R-I-S, Berliant, B-E-R-L-I-A-N-T, at AmericanBar.org. And I think possibly there's a period in between the name Chris and the name Berlian. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Without you, we wouldn't have a show so much appreciated there. And if you like what you heard today, please find and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, now also in Spotify. But it's always best yet with your favorite podcasting app of choice. I'm Lawrence Coletti signing off from the American Bar Association Annual Meeting 2019 in San Francisco, California. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. 
or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.